today I've got Natasha Case. You guys might know her because of her really cool, trendy ice cream sandwiches. She founded Cool House back in 2009. She studied architecture, she went to UCLA, and she decided that she really had a passion for bringing together kind of the concept between art and food. And now she runs this very successful company from Los Angeles. And the background of the company is actually quite cool too, because they really got started by this one truck. They couldn't even drive it there. It was an undrivable truck that they towed to Coachella. And that's where they first premiered these sandwiches. So Natasha, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, I know I just gave you guys, everyone listening, some background, but you take us back to the beginning of how this idea started. Sure. So, you know, I'd been studying architecture um, at uh, undergrad at UC Berkeley, and I think I always approached architecture thinking um, this is this is a great um, skill set, and um, it and it can open a lot more doors than just architecture. There's a there's a broad way of thinking behind it, and I also kind of like to. Um, I like change from within, so I was like, the way to really know how to do something different is to um, is to learn all the rules, so then you can know the rules that you're breaking, right? That's kind of my philosophy in life, and that's very much entrepreneurial mentality, I think. Um, but anyway, I think in, in design school, I just felt there was a little bit of a disconnect. You know, we were learning all these cool things, but when I would try to explain them to my friends, I just felt like they didn't know what I what we were saying. They said, that sounds awesome, but like I can't figure out what you're doing in architecture school. Okay, this is kind of a red flag. And so I was searching for a way to, to make architecture more fun. And um, the, the whole thing kind of came to me by accident. Uh, a professor of mine uh, criticized the scale model that I had made. And he said, this, this model looks like a layer cake. And as though that was a bad thing. And I thought, layer cakes are awesome. Why, why is, is that a criticism? And just to show him, I'm going to bake the next iteration of the model as a cake. So I did that. And it was actually my only all-nighter in all of, um, all of Architecture Studio, which is another story. But the reason why I stayed up all night is because it was so much fun. You know, working with cake as the material really, um, I think, just, just I knew I would never be bored of it. So I thought, okay, I'm kind of onto something with this. And then when I presented it to my colleagues, they were so much more engaged than, you know, a model made of fossil wood. So I thought, this is it. Like, architecture can be, you know, food can be the medium to talk about design. Food brings people together. It's memorable. It's fun. Um, I guarantee you, if you ask people, um, what do you remember from a studio at Berkeley? You're going to remember the model made of cake. It's just the kind of thing you don't forget. So I set out to play with this idea and, um, you know, I, I didn't really know what it would look like. I tried a lot of different ideas, um, different products, different, like, high-concept dinner parties. I started calling the philosophy Farkitecture, Food Plus Architecture, which is the name of my LLC. And uh, fast forward to my first real job after grad school was Disney Imagineering. And I um, was there two, three months. And um, right around then is when the recession started setting in. So things got really dark at the office. Disney was particularly hard hit by the recession. So to kind of lighten the mood, started baking the cookies, making the ice cream from scratch, naming the combinations after architects. And I would give it out to people who, you know, had gotten maybe some bad news, say, sorry to hear, you know, what happened, but here's a minimalism or here's a Frank Berry. And they would sort of laugh amidst the tears. And it, that's really all it was at first, I would say, a passionate hobby. And then I met the other founder, Freya Streller. And she really saw the business potential in what I was doing. And then we really started talking about taking it to the next level. That's so incredible. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Wait, so I, I want to back up. Right out of college, you got yeah. the Disney job. Was that just an easy application? Did you know somebody there? So um, actually, I went from UC Berkeley uh, for undergrad. 
and then I got my master's degree from UCLA. So I I, I was in architecture seven years. Um, and uh, after, uh, you know, architecture school, after after UCLA, after getting my master's, that's when I started at, at um, Imagineering at Disney. But yeah, it's a really, it's a really um, difficult job to get. Uh, apparently, it's kind of been like that top yeah, tier of, of like being like, you know, an astronaut and, you know, that it's like a dream job. Um, and so... So actually, my mom um, had worked at Disney for many years. She's in TV animation. And when I was younger, um, she had figured out that Disney had a scholarship program for, you know, to, to go to college. So I had applied for that, and they, I, they had awarded me a full scholarship to go to college. Oh, wow. Yeah, yes, yeah, sponsored by Disney. And it was a you know, amazing, amazing opportunity. Um, I, of course, ended up picking the, the cheapest school, uh, but you know, it's, it's money sure. that, that's not, that you don't have, yeah. so whatever. It's all about the quality of the education. But actually, when I um, set my sight on Imagineering, because to me it was great, it was, you know, it's, it's, it's architecture, it's design, but it's about brand and storytelling, and it was sort of an outside-the-box uh, application of architecture in that way. So when I interviewed there, I said, look, you know, you've invested in me already. You invested in my education. The least you can do is let me come back and, you know, show you, show you what, I, what I got from it. And I think that was actually a really big um, selling point for them. So I ended up getting the job right after grad school. And you said you were only there three months. I was only there, uh, well, yeah, three months before the recession hit. Okay. And then I stayed on another, let's see, four or five months before I, too, was laid off. Oh, yes. okay, okay. Yes. And was that then when you were like, I want to take these sandwiches and yeah. bring them together. So uh, actually, I worked one more job before getting into Colossal Full Time, which was a design trade show. And that also went bankrupt due to the recession. But, um, you know, around the time of, um, of when I was getting laid off from Disney is when I started thinking a bit more seriously about Cool House in general. So Freya and I had been making these ice cream sandwiches and talking about the, the you know, the um, business application potential um, I really wasn't thinking that way, as I said. So when she first saw the product, she said, you know, what, what's your cost per unit? And I said, I don't know. I went to Whole Foods. I spent $80. And she said, okay, we're going to go to the market and we're going to write down what everything costs and we're going to make a pro forma. What, I don't even know what that is, you know? So we go to Whole Foods, we write down everything, but we also walk the freezer aisle. And um, what we saw there, because we want to see like, you know, what, what's really our competition? is that um, there was really no innovation and, and no kind of um, unique thinking going on with any of the brands. And they had sort of been stagnant like, like that for decades. And then on most, I think in a way more importantly, we just didn't feel represented by any of the brands on the shelves. Um, definitely not as millennials, definitely not as women, Definitely not as gay women, you know, so we're actually dating also. At the oh, time. We'll, wow. We'll okay, cool. That. Yeah, whole other layer. Um, and, you know, I think we saw there's an opportunity to really be the voice of our generation, uh, you know, for ice cream. Like, why not us? Why not us to be that kind of Ben and Jerry's, you know, representing kind of the, the counterculture of our, of our generation through ice cream? Let's do this. And so we um, went back home and we talked about, like, how can we really get it out there? We don't understand grocery. No one's going to give us a loan for a scoop shop right now. It's the recession. But trucks, like trucks is something we could do. We had seen Kogi truck out there and they were amassing a big following. And so we thought, let's, let's be the ice cream truck. You know, let's reinvent the ice cream truck for our generation. So we Googled hipster ice cream truck. Nothing comes up like a truck that sold vinyl. And records. this is 2009. This is 2009. This is okay. the beginning of 2009. We thought we have to do this, like parting of the clouds. This is our moment. So we bought a postal truck masquerading as an ice cream truck for $2,500. 
Uh, it had no engine. It didn't even drive. We towed it to L.A., and then we thought, we really need uh, a, a big event to launch at. Like, let's find the biggest opportunity where we can, you know, just get the uh, a captive audience, but the right captive audience. People who, you know, culturally cool, maybe have some money to spend. Where can we do that? Coachella. So we begged Coachella to let us sell there for, you know, this went on for a couple months of literally us just annoying them so much that they finally said. Via email? A call, email, anything. Any connection we could find to them. They were like, stop bothering us. We'll let you sell here. You can park in the campground. So great. But this is it. This is our big opportunity. 100,000 people at Coachella. Um, but you remember the truck doesn't drive. So how do we get it there? So we had figured out that um, if we joined AAA Platinum, we got one free 200-mile tow. So the morning of Coachella, we pretended the truck broke down, even though it never drove in the first place, and AAA came out and towed us to the desert, and that's how it all started. Oh my God! Yeah. Wait, so the name—did you even know what to call it at that point? So we had—I think the name we had come up with a little earlier in 2009. We had names of sandwiches figured out. You know, we had the Mies Vanilla Row, named after Mies van der Rohe, the one of the founding architects of Bauhaus. We had Minimalism after Minimalist Design, Frank Berry after Frank Gehry, you know, et cetera. Um, though we didn't have a, a, a brand name. And a friend of ours was over for dinner and she said, you should really do a sandwich after Rem Koolhaas. It just sounds like, you know, kind of like a dessert that? name. Rem Koolhaas is one of my personal favorite architects, actually, because okay. he really is is a very interdisciplinary, outside-the-box thinker with architecture. Um, so I was always drawn to him. And uh, I thought, you know, Rem Koolhaas, like, said, Koolhaas that's mm-hmm. it, that's the name of the company. And then, and then, well, Fran and I both think that we said that. But then we figured out that we could have a double entendre, because we were all about the punny names, with the Bauhaus movement, spelling it the way we do, and then cool to make it more clear that it's, you know, dessert company, cold, frozen dessert company. Um, and so we thought, that's it. It's going to be Cool House. That's the name of the company. So we got to that after, you know, a, a little bit kind of later in the development of, of the company. But I think, you know, that it, the name does definitely go a long way. Um, so by the time we got to Coachella, we did have, yeah, we're a Cool House ice cream sandwiches. And in terms of you figuring out how to even make ice cream, yeah. I mean, how did you know how to go about that? And also, I mean, there's got to be some logistics. Yeah. You have a truck that doesn't work, yeah. so there's no freezers. Mm-hmm. How is it all not going to melt? How do you make enough for a thousand yeah. guests? Yes. So, um, I, okay, first, making ice cream, totally self-taught. No formal cooking training or or pastry training. But we did figure out, you know, we can, ice cream is the kind of thing where it's a little bit more like cooking. It's more interactive than um, pastry, which is uh, not to say that ice cream is not technical, but when you're making ice cream, you can sort of, you know, throw in different flavors and try it as you go. And so I think it's a really good one to just have fun with and experiment, which is, you know, what we started to do. Um, But I also think we just understand, you know, like there's something I think without a formal training where do you just understand food and do you want, do you know what people want and are you passionate about food? I think that's what we had. Um, But when we got into Coachella, we figured out pretty quickly, we're not going to be able to make this all ourselves anyway. We're going to be up for 14 days without sleeping on our little Cuisinart ice cream maker. We need a production partner. We need a manufacturing partner. So we basically cold called a lot of, you know, ice cream manufacturers. We thought, we don't need to reinvent this wheel. Like we're not the first people to need someone to help us make ice cream. Um, And so we got a couple partners in place to help us make the cookies and ice cream with our recipes to spec so that we could have the product we needed for Coachella. And I'm so glad we did that because after Coachella, um, things went, you know, viral. So we were able to meet the demand of that immediate growth and that immediate excitement because we weren't just in the kitchen making things. And that's my real approach with the food business is, 
understanding food, I'm, I'm glad to have been there in the beginning, like figuring out those first few recipes. But ultimately, you know, I'm not here to be a, a, a chef. You know, I'm here to create a brand. And I think you, you figure out that, you know, you have to have people who can do those things and can be experts underneath you while you're leading the vision of the brand. Because if you're in the kitchen all day, you're never mm-hmm. going to be able to do that. Um, as far as, you know, keeping things cold, yes, the ice cream didn't drive, but it did have a freezer that we could plug in. And then we also brought um, separately a chest freezer, which I think we drove out in like Freya's dad's like minivan, like in the back and then got there and, and plugged it in. So um, I would say it was the true definition of minimum viable product. Um, there was nothing fancy at all about the setup, but we did have like minimum functionality to make it work, to be able to make ice cream sandwiches in the desert. Something that I think is also really unique is the packaging. Obviously you look at Ben and Jerry's, you look at like so delicious and it's just that white wrapper that says like so delicious or Ben and Jerry's cool house has this very like cheeky, unique packing. So when you went into knowing you wanted to bring this to Coachella, were you like, I need to focus heavily on the recipe and what it tastes like, or I should focus on the packaging. Well, by Coachella, there was not really packaging per se, not like you'd see in a grocery store today. Um, it was uh, more of the food service operation. You know, um, the other thing we figured out is they can't be prepackaged sandwiches in 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 um, for this setup because it was a lot more work to pre-make mm-hmm. all the sandwiches and to store them and transport them. So we started doing um, scoop to order, choose your cookie, choose your ice cream, which is still how we do all of our trucks and shops if you've been to them. Um, so there was you know, some very, very minimal, minimal branding of the booth, the truck, we did not have the money to brand at all. It just looked like, pardon my French, a shitty ice cream truck. You know, it was like our dream, like sitting next to our booth, like we're going to fix up this truck if we make enough money here at Coachella. So I wouldn't say that by then we had really invested in the brand. We just figured out the exact minimum for people to understand what we were doing, sort of, like, so it was more about getting it out there and the timing and really seeing that people wanted this. I think that's the most important thing you have to know at first, because otherwise you could have the most beautiful brand and have this insane product. But if you ju- if you don't know that there's desire for it, you're kind of like wasting your time and you're working in a vacuum. So putting the idea out there is so, so key. Then when we had that, then we could invest a little bit in the branding, you know, making the truck say cool house and um, so that the door could operate, that the engine could work. Again, we're talking about let's just get it on the road and let's build more demand. Um, I think for a first business and being the age that we were and being the timing with the economy, that was the way to do it. Like let's really let's let's really build and make sure there's there's you know there's excitement and then we can continue to to take it farther. I think now at this stage that we're in, you know it's it's um and for, as far as the hierarchy of what's most important, brand and product are pretty close. I would say. Um, I, I would put a brand as like a slightly higher notch um, because I think uh, it's something what, when it's truly special and when it's very, very story driven as ours is, no one can copy it. No one can take it away. Um, it's it's totally unique to you. So I think that's really, really key to lean into that and to think about what are the unique points of your brand that no one else has? What is what is the problem you're trying to solve? What is the message? Who's behind it? You know, People want to know who you are. They want transparency into the culture. They want to know what the team is about. They want to know how you come up with your ideas. So really, really, I think developing that and then the close second is product. At the end, you have to deliver with the product. Otherwise, people are going to be excited by the brand and try it, but they're not going to come back a second time. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people we're in the business of 
um, one person, you know, uh, ordering us or buying us a thousand times versus a thousand people trying us once. I'm way more interested in that one person and what's going to make them be obsessed with what you're doing and never stop buying it. Mm. Um, the last thing I'll say is, you know, for me with my architecture background, that's just the branding is kind of a natural, you know, progression of, of where I went with, with that, um, with that degree. I think, um, the, the branding of Colossus is a great opportunity to, um, you know, create a visual identity and to tell stories through design, which is a huge part of, um, you know, the, the architecture training and also um, working at Disney. That's a really interesting point you bring up, especially on the topic of the brand versus the quality, because I think of a line like Rag and Bone. Everyone I talked to was like, it's the worst, you know, ragged food. Yeah, They're like, this is such bad quality clothing. But of course, everyone's still shopping <laughs> yeah. there. So it's, it's about it's, the brand. It's, and the, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. kind of similar. I do want to ask you, though, in terms of making ice cream at the beginning and then getting this truck, were you guys self-funding this? Were you taking, yes. how were you paying The for very this? beginning was my personal credit card with a $5,000 limit. So I know you've got some, you know, pretty young listeners probably just figuring out what they want to do. We all have one of those, right? So I didn't have anything that um, someone else couldn't potentially get their hands on, uh, you know, to, to, to a certain extent. And um, but we spent so little getting to Coachella that we were basically in the black right away. So I was able to quickly, you know, pay it off. I think if we had gone to town with, you know, um, a, a fancy setup and like spending a ton on the brand and all those things, that would have been much more difficult to do. And it would have been difficult to keep Cool House afloat right away as we were able to. So, yeah, we were cash flowing and we were in the black right from the beginning and all the way through till quite recently, actually, when we've had to really invest in the marketing and brand um, and innovation more to be able to um, scale what we're building at grocery stores. And how did you even come up with the price of what, I mean, you know, what are your, what's yeah. the cost to make this? There's some pretty standard numbers I think you can look at. I would say, you know, in like food service, hospitality, you want your um, cost of goods to be about um, 30% of what you're going to charge, you know. So you're selling something for around nine, you want it to cost you around three to make purely in, you know, the goods. And then you factor in some other labor components, hopefully around 20% mm -hmm. or less. And then you kind of build into your margin. Um, and then I would say in grocery, you pretty much could divide twice to, to, um, figure out what it's costing that brand to make it. So something's on the shelf for five bucks. They probably sold it to that retailer for two fifty. It probably cost them a dollar 25 to make or to buy from their, you know, co-packer as we would call it or manufacturer. And to clarify now, where are you making, where's everything made to, to date? So mostly in Southern California. Okay. Um, uh, and we are producing as well, um, some items in, um, Arizona and Utah, but we're really looking at building a more national, um, manufacturing network and, uh, warehousing network because our business has grown so much outside the West coast. We're actually growing faster and more on, in the Northeast where you're from. Yeah. And so, you know, sending something frozen across the country it's just, uh, it not only can it get super expensive, but it's easier to, um, you know, maintain that quality mm -hmm. and, and have those controls when you're making it relatively in that region and, sure. and, it's, and it's shipping out closer. So the key now will be building that network and everyone will be better served from that. So that, that's going to be phase two of, of our production story. So let's talk about social media because social media is one of those topics with especially like a company like Cool House. Yeah. You guys thrive on social media. Have yeah. a huge following. Back in 2009, I, yeah. I doubt everyone was out Coachella to do yeah. an Instagram yeah. picture like right. they are to date. There was so no how, Instagram. How picture. did you guys utilize it? And do you think now if you were to 
do Coachella the same way today, 2019, yeah. it would have launched and been as successful. So um, the early days of, of Cool House were very much about Twitter. Twitter was the new phenomenon. It's sort of, I think, um, I mean, yeah, we had Facebook, but I think Twitter was kind of that more, um, uh, I think the way that that brands were using it and, and, and um, creating urgency through it, um, whether that be, in our case, you know, where you can find us and what our menu is, or in the case of like comedians, like you know, telling jokes on Twitter, it was it was I think a more outside the box application of of how to really um, create a brand voice. So it was all about Twitter. And when we were uh, going to launch at Coachella, um, thank goodness we you know marked Twitter.com forward slash Coolhouse. Like we've got a we've got a Twitter handle, and we had the basic basics of a website. So it's so important to have that in place because you never know what's going to happen next. So um, the way it went down actually is um, we were packing up and leaving Coachella and a friend of mine um, at the time worked for Curbed, the real estate blog. And he said, you know, if Coachella goes well, send me your logo and I'll do a piece on you guys. So I thought this, this went pretty well. We're in the black. I think we had kind of created a following. People were excited about it. Um, so I reached out to him, sent him the logo, not even, you know, it was like a picture of a logo, not even a vector-based file, which is shameful for master's in architecture degree. But anyway, Dan wrote this piece. It wasn't even that nice. It's something like, uh, you know, if you're really bored and you have nothing to do, the cool house truck serves these ice cream sandwiches. It's kind of weird. It's named after architects, but, but maybe check it out. Thanks, Dan. Super helpful. But it didn't matter. It went viral. So it went from there to apartment therapy, to LA Times, to Dwell. I had editors calling me the whole way home from Coachella. Meanwhile, Freya is separately coming home. Her phone had died. She, she charges it. And um, she had a setting at the time. Every new Twitter follower, she got an email. So I called her to tell her this was going on. And she said, I'm so glad you called. I think our Twitter account has been hacked. We're getting a new follower every other second. I was like, no, that's really happening. By the time we got to LA, we had almost 10,000 followers, which was a huge deal at that time. So I think it was, a, social media has always been a big part of the DNA. And 10,000 was enough to work with to start with. You know, those are going to be like, core people who want a food adventure, who are paying attention, who are engaged. So I think, you know, we, we always felt like we were kind of talking to like this big room of fans and how do we really kind of share something special with them. And then of course, social media has evolved so much since then. Um, Twitter's kind of come back in a funny way, but we use it very differently. It's, you know, so much about brand voice and, and being kind of I think, um, funny and, and showing that edge, but also truly, truly engaging with our community, really talking to people about um, the product they're getting in our one of our 7,000 grocery stores now. And did they like it? Did they, did they, do they want more of another flavor? Like really being super personal and talking to them like a friend, not like a fan, mm. you know? Um, and I think, um, you know, uh, Instagram is visual identity, but it's now stories and that's much more raw and much more, you know, quote unquote, real and authentic. So it's kind of always evolving. And I think for us, the DNA is, is just not being afraid to be pioneering about it, to be, to be super authentic and, um, to, uh, have vulnerability to, to share things on, to share the ugly side sometimes. Um, and then to continue to embrace the next chapter, to never be afraid of that. Uh, your second question would it have succeeded today? Not in the same format. I think we couldn't, you couldn't just copy what we did back then and do it in 2019 and boom, viral success. No. Um, I think that was a moment. Um, it wouldn't be pioneering now. 
you know, we were pioneering for being the first, you know, to reinvent the ice cream truck for our generation. We were being pioneering in embracing Twitter. We were being pioneering in being the first food truck at Coachella. You know, now there's, you get yeah. five course chef cooked dinner at Coachella. So I think there's always room for like the next generation, the next chapter to do something great, but it's going to have to be totally specific to that, to that generation. Were you able, when you got that viral Twitter success to merge that to Instagram when it launched? Uh, yeah, I think that it, it did translate. I think you had a big enough audience and you had enough kind of shared use between those two networks that, um, you know, uh, starting the page, like obviously you've grown a lot since then, but it's, it's, uh, people did kind of, um, you know, uh, jump in fairly quickly and we were fairly early in the game too. I remember, uh, the person who was managing our Twitter feed at the time was like, Oh, like, I, I think we should, we should, Instagram is, is a thing. It seems to be a thing. I think we should have a cool ass page in there. We're kind of like, okay, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't, it wasn't even so obvious. Like now you look back and you're like, Oh, well, obviously, you know, you've got to get in there as soon as possible. So I think being super early, being an early adapter also helped us build that following quickly. Do you also, as a, on a personal level, as an entrepreneur, like how do you think that you've personally grown from 2009 to now? So much. You grow so much. Um, and I think you have to be, be like patient with yourself and know that that growth and that change is going to happen. It's, it's, not, it's not overnight, you know, um, and you have to sometimes learn you, 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 you always have to learn through the experience. I don't think it's something you can read in a book or in a class, something you can necessarily learn, you know, being taught by mm -hmm. another entrepreneur even. That's going to help. That's going to give you good stories. That's going to give you some tools. But applying it in real life is where the real, real learning happens. And I think as entrepreneurs, like, you just, you do grow quickly. Um, change and discomfort usually means something good's about to happen. I mean, it could mean something bad's about to happen, but if you're doing well and then it's just sort of on cruise control, you're not going to become amazing. Mm -hmm. It's going to stagnate. So I think you learn to lean into that change and almost like embrace it and be more excited for it. Cause it's like, okay, this feels un uncomfortable. I'm, I'm learning more. This is not, this is not, I, I thought I kind of had all down and now this whole other component opened up. Like that's a good thing. And that's an opportunity for you to really, really quickly continue to accelerate in that change. Um, and hopefully, you know, you never stop, you never stop evolving because, um, if you do, I think it's harder and harder to find that place even in your own company. You mentioned at the beginning of the episode that you and your girlfriend went into business. Yes. And assuming you guys are still yes, business Yes, we're married. And we oh, were, you yes, are? Okay. Married. We have a son. She's pregnant with our second. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say you yeah. look like literally 25, but oh I'm assuming you're, you're not 25. Ever. Yes, yes. I'm coming back on the show whenever you need. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm done. Next time we'll bring some sandwiches. We'll have a whole boardroom. That's amazing. So yeah. I see so many men and women, women and women, men and men, whatever, go yeah. into business together, mm. and I'm fascinated by how it works. Yeah. To me, it would be very intimidating. Yes. So how did you how did you do it? So the way that we did it is not necessarily how I would recommend um, because uh, we just sort of we just sort of did it. We just sort of like okay, we're launching. This is happening. We didn't think everything through. I think also, um, you know, we started when we were 25. And what's good about that point in life um, is that I think you are a little bit more in the day to day. You're you're in the moment. And I don't mean that as a criticism at all. And obviously not every 25-year-old is like that. But you kind of need that also to start the business. If you think it through to every last detail, you're going to talk yourself out of it. So we were kind of in the moment, like this is happening. And we were, you know, we like we're just totally, you know, um, uh, just like in love right away with one another. We were like super romantic. Everything, everything was happening. This cool idea, us. 
And I think um, what I would say is the, the, the best thing to do actually if you're going to go into business, not only with a romantic partner, but a really good friend, a family member, you should plan for worst case scenario and make an agreement based on that. If things get really, really ugly, you know, what can we both feel good about walking away with? Because you don't want to be having those conversations if things do get ugly, because it's going to be much harder to negotiate. And I think um, it's good to have a little bit of skin in the game. Even if people just put, you know, $1,000 each or something, something that's harder to walk away from. Um, so we put everything on my personal credit card. You know, I don't know why we chose mine and not Freya's. Freya's very good in that way, but in theory, it would have been good for us both to have some skin in the game there, you know? Uh, but luckily things did work out and about two years in, we made a real operating agreement and, you know, we said, look, we're just, we're 50, 50, you know? So, um, but I think besides that, it's an amazing, like if it can work with someone you really know and love, it can be the most amazing thing ever. argue about the business or, or fight, which we did, two women, you know, definitely can get into it. I think the business was sort of a great, uh, it was almost like a metaphor to work out personal differences. Instead of it being a personal attack, the business is showing you different your different philosophies and and you you kind of like take it outside of just you. It's almost like an exercise you yeah. could do at therapy. Like, you know, how would you tell this person that you want them to scoop an ice cream sandwich better? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. um, so I think all of those things were super positive. Um, we are actually not business partners at Cool House anymore. Um, it did get to a point four years in where Freya started to feel burnt out. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, the, the, on the, on the flip side of, you know, working together and, and being in a relationship is difficult to have a boundary, you know, difficult to know when to turn it off. It was particularly hard for Freya to turn it off. If anything went wrong and we were like at a social event, it would just ruin her whole night, you know? And I think she also started to feel like the work she was doing, she could hire someone to do that better. She was running finance and ops. And she felt like, you know, this isn't necessarily my passion. I want to bring someone in who's passionate. And um, she thought that I was doing more of the fun stuff, you know, branding and the marketing and the Were events. You? I mean, I guess objectively it's more fun. Yeah. It's still really hard, yeah, you course. know, but there was some resentment building sure. from that. And I then became the CEO. She was the COO. I was her boss. You know, that yeah. can get tricky. So um, she ended up stepping away and just took like a six month just like break, you know. And um, what I also will say to people is the business has to be bigger than the relationship and the relationship has to be bigger than the business. If, if the business is going to fall apart because you break up, it, it wasn't, it had nothing to stand on anyway. Mm. So Freya was able to step outside of it. It was scary at first, but you could see pretty quickly this was better for everyone. You know, she wasn't happy anymore. And I think it made me a better CEO because I couldn't depend on her for certain things. I had to, I had to dig in more myself. And speaking of the points of evolution, that was a major chapter of evolution for me. Did she come back or no? She, we, I call her now the first lady of Cool House. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she's not on the payroll, but she has my ear, controls many, many things yeah. behind the scenes. But she, she took a break and then she ended up starting a spirits business, um, which now has taken the form of Future Gen, which is an amazing, um, completely women-owned vertical mm. of, of gin. 
And it's just gone. It's, it's, it's totally taken off. It's like uh, just to have this like totally like, uh, and very organic, like embracing yeah. and love and like celebrated all these super cool accounts. Uh, what neighborhood do you live in? Hollywood. In Hollywood. Okay. So, well, it's a lot of East side accounts. Um, uh, but in Hollywood, if you go to Domain LA, okay. the wine and spirit yeah. store, it's there. Uh, a ton of accounts in Highland Park. Mm-hmm. It's at the you know Ace sure. Hotel. It's oh, I love all, Ace. A, real, yeah. a lot of really fun locations, and um, so that's sort of become uh, like a, a kind of passionate side project for her. And her day to day is she works in tea at a company called Tea Drops. Okay. So she's oh, I know there. Tea drops. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Sashi should come on the show. I yeah. love Tea yeah. Drops. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Great. So um, anyway, so she's found a whole new, you know, chapter at Tea Drop. She actually likes not being the boss. I think that was part of yeah. it for her. You know, she wants to help someone grow their company sure. and build their dream, but not have everything fall on her shoulders. So it really worked out for the best. And I think now not only is our relationship, you know, it's like the most balanced it's ever been, but I think when we talk business, we can give each other yeah. outside perspective and, um, and not get, you know, as emotional with it. So it's actually like totally a win-win. Do you think that back when you started the company and you were so young and you, yeah. you didn't have that like five year plan, do you think that there were times where you guys stayed together because you were like, if we break up, the company's going to break up or was it never, you never had that kind of, you know, I don't, I never thought of staying together for the business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's, you know, a really good sign for the relationship. And I never thought of it in the reverse either. You know, I never thought of it, um, you know, uh, so that the, the, the business is keeping us together or, you know, in, in either direction. Um, and uh, I think, you know, for me, I think, I don't know, with, with Freya, it's, it's one of those things. And again, I could have, if I was, my 25-year-old self was sitting here and saying, I'm in love with this woman and we're going to start mm-hmm. this, we're going to be like the ice cream brand of our generation. And I'd be like, whoa, 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 you know, but look, I mean, we just knew, like, we just were, we're soulmates. And I always knew for us, it was, you know, um, it's, it's bigger than anything. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, the dynamic we have together is, is, is so powerful and so strong. Um, and, uh, even when it was really hard with Cool House, I don't think what, what's good is I don't think it ever got to the point where I don't know if we can, you know, survive this as a relationship. We didn't let it get there. Right. It wasn't like, oh, if Frey doesn't leave the company, we're getting, you know, we're going to get, I don't know if we were married then, but we're going to get divorced, sure. let's say in theory. So um, it was, it was one of those things that like, this just is not as good as it could be. Mm-hmm. This could be better for us and for the company. Okay. On a more um, fun note, <laughs> lightly, what, what do you eat? Like, do you eat ice cream all day? I'm really curious. So, I would say I taste ice cream pretty okay. much every day. Um it's, it's, I say it's like a writer looks at a page at this point. Like I'm surrounded by thousands of gallons of ice cream and delicious products and sandwiches and everything new that we're working on, but it never seems scary to me. You know, people are like, how could you possibly work with all that ice cream around you? I just see it as like, okay, I want this to be, you know, this needs to be perfect. Let's try it. And you're sort of like, it's your job. Yeah. Right. That being said, I've never been sick of it. When I go out mm-hmm. of town, I just came back from Shanghai for four days. I really miss it. Yeah. I miss having those little tastes and, um, and having it around. Uh, we have so many flavors also that I think that keeps you really engaged with the product. You know, you're always kind of, um, maybe you're, you're yearning for something different uh, in a flavor profile. And I run up our innovation side. So now we're like making so many new cool things. At the office right now, we have um, working on bonbons. So we've been trying all different shapes and sizes and, and different coatings. That definitely like always fun to try something new like that. And then we're working on reinventing the Choco Taco as a taquito. Ah, okay. So it's kind of like an ice yeah. cream cigar. So I was trying those. And on my own volition, I'll just try them. You know, like it's like I want to taste them. It's not just because I have sure. to. 
Um, but I would say outside of that, I, I, I do eat pretty healthy. Um, I'm definitely a fan of, though, you know, I'm in the food world. Like, I'm not into, like, um, extreme deprivation in any way. Like, I would say I try to eat mostly vegetarian. I try to eat a lot of things we grow in our garden and eat very clean. But if I'm at an event and someone's like, this is the best, you know, whatever burger you're going to have in your life, I'm not going to be on my deathbed. Of course. Like, oh, I should have had yeah. that burger. Like, what if it was the best? Like, so yeah. I'm, I'm definitely a fan of a little indulgence and Actually, what I'm doing right now that I love is intermittent fasting. Oh, are you? Yeah. Oh my gosh, everyone talks about yeah, this. Yeah, it's amazing. Really? Yeah, but you don't really you don't eat until like what twelve? Twelve. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I'm sometimes I just won't eat until twelve anyway, but it's like not out of habit. But I love. Yeah. But then yeah, can you exactly. have coffee in the morning? You can. But and you can black? have bulletproof coffee. Oh, because you can have. I was gonna say you with like ghee or fat. butter. Okay. Exactly. So I feel like that's what I do anyway. But yeah. people use that. Yeah. As like a, you just feel like more sure. a little strict about it, about and then. You know, then it ends at eight. So mm-hmm. that includes alcohol after that. Sure. And I think that's another thing. It cuts people off much oh sooner than yeah. they would. Yeah, that's of the, course. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm definitely a fan of moderation and I'm definitely a fan of homegrown mm-hmm. in general. Of like course. the garden is my favorite thing. Yeah. Okay. So it's been um, uh, 10, nine years, 10 years. 10 years. And where do you see Cool House going in the next 10 years? I really do want to be the ice cream brand of, of our generation. Um, right now, we're the leading women-founded and led brand at Grocery, so that's a really big deal, um, I, I think, and an important point for us. Um, so we want to continue to change the game and change the face of the kind of brands that my generation and the next generation buys and creates for themselves. Um, you know, I definitely see... Uh, Continuing to grow, uh, you know, where the, the sandwiches is sort of what we started started with. We're working on now uh, mini sandwiches, so like a three-pack of half-size sandwiches. Uh, we're working on the bonbons, the taquitos. We have so much coming through innovation. Uh, we have our dairy-free line, which has totally taken off, made from peas and brown rice and cocoa butter. We have pints and sandwiches. I see that whole plant-based segment, you know, c- continuing to grow and exploding and um, becoming potentially like an equal to the dairy world. Yeah. I, th- I think of it sort of like what you're seeing in, in you know, mead and then plant-based. Um, it's the plant-based options that people are really buying beyond meat and impossible foods are not about, um, you know, like, oh, a totally better for you necessarily. Like they're still really rich and indulgent. They're just better for the planet. And so I see a, a similar trajectory happening with, with ice cream as well. Um, and then I think there's potential for us to extend outside of ice cream with the brand we have. You know, we talked about brand being super meaningful earlier. And I think the other factor in that is when you have an amazing brand, you can do anything. When you have an amazing culture, you can think way outside of, you know, the product mm-hmm. that you're starting with. You're not, you, you don't have guardrails no. just in that one section. So I think we have a lot of opportunity to innovate, you know, wherever we may decide to go with this. It seems like the possibilities are endless yeah. and you continue to evolve. Is it yeah. just you that comes up with all of these innovative ideas? I lead the innovation team and um, on the team with me is my amazing R&D queen. It's her official title, Courtney McBroom. And she's phenomenal in terms of her inventiveness and her palate. And so we really work together to bring a lot of the ideas mm-hmm. to life. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so Dream much. Job. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing <laughs> everything with us. Um, where can everyone find you on social media and the company? Yeah. So we're uh, social is at Cool House, and that's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Our website is cool.house. That's C O O L dot H A U S. And then we're in um, 7,500 grocery stores all around the country in every state, everything from here, your local Bristol Farms, Gelson's to, you know, a Ralph's Kroger, Safeway around the country, Wegmans, Publix, wherever that local store is that has a super premium ice cream. And then we have trucks in L.A., Dallas, and New York, and we have Scoop Shop in L.A. and Dallas. 
Well, that's just, you know, yeah. casual, 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 casual. Oh my gosh, you are such a gem. Thank you so much, so much for being here. Those Thank of you. you who have listened to this entire episode, I want to reiterate the fact that Natasha started this company back in 2009. So this is not something that just was like, all of a sudden one day, yeah. it went viral in a sense, but there's yeah. so much more to do totally. once it even yeah. does that. Um, just to put it in, in context, the first year going viral and growing, we made about 100 grand in revenue. And this year should be uh, 15, 16 million. Wow. So it was great to go viral at first, but you know, it was still a, a very small business and it takes a lot to continue to grow it. And you have to keep you know, evolving and pivoting and, and opening new doors to be able to get there. Of course, of course. Well, um, I hope you guys loved this episode. We're almost at episode 100. So thank you so much for continuing to support the podcast. Make sure to subscribe on the podcast app as well as write a review. And of course, every single founder is available to reach on LinkedIn or via email. So if you ever really want to reach out to somebody, you can easily contact them by any of the avenues um, that they have on their websites or their social media. And I will see you guys next week for a new episode of This Is Life Unfiltered. Mm-hmm.